Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And today we are joined again by a very special guest, Bishop Chandler Jones, the coadjutor of the Diocese of the Eastern United States in the Anglican Province of America. Bishop, how are you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much. It's a joy. It's a delight to be back. Thank you for having me on this program. It's always a wonderful treat to be with you. Yes, well, we, we count it a privilege to get to have you on. It's wonderful that you're willing to do that for us. So today, uh, we are going to discuss a listener-requested topic, and that is apostolic secession. Uh, we are going to look at the topic from three angles, sort of, and, and of course, as the bishop wants to, uh, wants to go, so the conversation will. Uh, but I think the three basic angles that we can look th- at this topic through are the uh, biblical precedent, uh, the historical development uh, or um, historical reality of it, and then um, we can answer the question why this really matters. So biblically, um, where might we start when we're trying to figure out uh, how apostolic secession works? That is a fantastic beginning. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? What a wonderful way to start off this conversation. When you consider apostolic succession, we go to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was sent by the Father, from the Father, with a mission to save the world. And our Lord himself says that when he constitutes the apostolic college as that permanent essential ministry of his mystical body, the church, The apostles receive from Christ the same mission and the same authority as our Lord himself received from the Father. And we read about that in St. John chapter 20, starting at verse 21, after the resurrection. The biblical data for apostolic succession is a plenitude. It's a plethora. There are lots of references to the not only the, the practical existence of apostolic succession, but its institution from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So our Lord, after the resurrection, appears to the apostles. He breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. And along with that commission, this authority conveyed upon the 12, or at this point, the 11, because we recall that Judas Iscariot had fallen away and had departed from the faith and from Christ himself. Our Lord gives to the eleven this power of absolution, of the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name, and he says, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. So the mission that the Father gave to our Lord Jesus Christ, that mission, that authority, that commission, is conferred upon the apostolic band. And there we find the beginning of apostolic succession. Now, the pastoral epistles in the New Testament refer continually to the offices of bishop, presbyter, and deacon. The qualifications for those ministries are laid out very clearly by St. Paul. We see in Acts chapter 20 that the bishops, the apostles, ordained presbyters in every church. They conferred a measure of their authority. We see St. Paul ordaining St. Timothy as a bishop. And so there is clearly a conferral of this apostolic authority on successors who would come after the Twelve. Most principally, we see Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, where St. Matthias is elected to replace Judas Iscariot. And he is elected because he is a witness of the resurrection, he is the risen Lord, and he is elected in the first episcopal election in Acts chapter 1 and counted among the Twelve. The number 12, of course, is critical because it is the reflection of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs of the Old Covenant, fulfilled now in the 12 patriarchs of the New Covenant. For the church is the new and spiritual Israel. It is the fulfillment of all of the Old Covenant. So you have the 12 apostles as the 12 patriarchs of the New and Everlasting Covenant. They are the Uh, foundation, if you will, the pillars of this new Israel. And our Lord himself, of course, is the personification of Israel and fulfills all the prophecy of the Old Testament. 
There are many biblical references, but we can think of certain ones like 1 Corinthians, where we read that those who are ordained are the stewards of the mysteries of God. Musterion in Greek, mystery or sacraments. So we see that there is a sacramental dimension. St. Paul refers to this, I believe, as 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 2 Corinthians, you have uh, chapter 2, which refers to those who are ordained as being in the person of Christ. That, of course, is reflected in the Latin phrase, in persona Christi capitis. Those men who are ordained in the apostolic succession stand in the person of Christ, who is the head of the church. There is a sacramental representation in those who are ordained. And we think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that those who are ordained are ambassadors of Christ, who stand in Christ's stead and confer the word of reconciliation. That's very sacramental language, again, from St. Paul. Uh, we have the testimony of the entire book of the Acts of the Apostles, but there are specific places like chapter 1, chapter 20, that clearly show us that Christ ordained the twelve. He set them apart. He took the twelve apart from the company of the disciples. We read of that in the Gospels. And the company of the disciples was a, a larger number, a wider number. And from this number, the twelve were selected. And these 12 disciples, who were followers, who were pupils, students of our Lord, these 12 were made apostles. And the word apostle, apostolos in Greek, means to be sent out, <coughs> sent forth. So these 12 have been consecrated by Christ, and we know that they were ordained, they were given this authority. That's what ordination really means. Back in the early church, the Greek word for ordination meant literally the laying on of the hand. We believe and we know that Christ ordained the 12 with this laying on of hands, and this is what they continued then after our Lord's death and resurrection. Apostolos means godsend. These 12 are godsent. They're godsends to the world, and they possess the commission of Christ to continue in a sacramental way his ministry until the end of the world. That is why, for example, if we look at the 1928 American prayer book, there's a wonderful prayer in the institution of ministers, which mm -hmm. refers to apostolic succession. The prayer goes like this. O holy Jesus, who has purchased to thyself an universal church and has promised to be with the ministers of apostolic succession to the end of the world, be graciously pleased to bless the ministry and service of him who is now appointed to offer the sacrifices of prayer and praise to thee in this house, which is called by thy name. May the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. So there's theology from the prayer book about apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is, in time and space, Christ's continual extension of his own ministry in a sacramental way until the end of time. So we can see St. Matthew 28 as a, a command, a prophecy regarding apostolic succession. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And that promise has been kept by our Lord through this conferral of the Holy Ghost in the sacrament of holy orders. Apostolic succession is the sacramental structure of the church. Hmm. It's not bene essay, not merely for the good order of the church, because as Michael Ramsey said, if bishops were only for the good order of the church, that already hasn't happened. <laughs> How many bad bishops there have been. So they're certainly not for the good order of the church. Bishops cause too many trouble uh, troubles through church history. It's not of the plene essay of the church, which is the fullness of the church. We could say that, but uh, that would indicate that there are areas where apostolic succession does not apply. No, apostolic succession is of the essay, of the being of the church, because it is the way by which the church is sacramentally constituted. So this is what we see with the twelve who received this commission and authority from Christ. And we see in turn that the twelve established churches throughout the Roman Empire and in every place 
they confer their authority on those who come after them. A multitude of examples are found in the New Testament. So that's a cursory introduction to the biblical question of apostolic succession. So uh, one clarification question for people that might be helpful um, is in, uh, you know, when we get away from uh, the sort of Bene essay view and we're saying, no, the episcopacy in apostolic succession is actually essential for the church to be the church, um, the pushback will be, well, that means you're unchurching all the other traditions. Uh, Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, the Baptist tradition, etc. Um, so is that what we are in effect doing? That's a great question. I, I have an answer for that question, if I may read it. I, I'm going to refer to my blog. For those of you not familiar with my blog, I have a blog. It, it's lonely, so please visit it. It's called <laughs> philorthodox.blogspot.com, P-H-I-L, orthodox. And over the years, many, many years, and now well over a decade, I've been writing essays and meditations, treatises on questions like this. So if I may, let me answer or try to answer, at least introduce an answer to the question of how do Anglican Catholics deal with the question of ecclesiastical bodies that lack the sacrament of apostolic succession and holy orders? I'll try to be relatively brief. Hopefully you have a, we have a little time to address it. But if I may, mm. I, I'd like to just read this, and maybe this will help to address the question. Let's go with number one about baptism. Let's start with baptism. The 1920 Lambeth Conference Appeal to All Christian People corresponds with the teaching of the Book of Common Prayer Catechism, which affirms that all Christians baptized with water, in the name of the Blessed Trinity, are true members of the Holy Catholic Church, the body of which Christ is the head, and all the baptized are members. All the baptized, by virtue of their incorporation into the one Christ in the one Spirit, are truly members of the one body, which is the Ark of Salvation and the Mother of Believers. You cannot have God for your Father without the Church as your Mother as St. Cyprian and St. Augustine wrote. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Extra ecclesia non salus est. Thus, although individual Christians may lack full sacramental communion with the visible Catholic church as constituted by Christ and the apostles, they still possess integral membership in the body of Christ by virtue of their sacramental identification with Christ the Lord. Anglicans thus simply say that all baptized Christians, the fides, the faithful, are members of Christ and hence members mystically of his church. This is, in essence, the teaching of St. Stephen I of Rome and of St. Augustine. Baptism conferred outside the visible sacramental communion of the great church is still a true valid baptism because it orders the person so baptized to the Catholic Church, whether they fully acknowledge it or not. All baptized Christians, according to the prayer book and the Lambeth Conference, are in some sense in the Church. Upon reception into the Catholic Church by confirmation, the baptism received by one outside the great Church is perfected and fulfilled, and that it flourishes in its proper context, which is communion in the fullness of the body. So we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and start saying that we're unchurching people who may belong to ecclesiastical bodies that lack holy orders and apostolic succession, because the first thing we want to say is that they are true Christians, and they've been baptized into Christ. And as long as they have a true Trinitarian baptism, they have in a real way been incorporated into the Lord Jesus and made members of the one mystical body of Christ, which is the Catholic and Apostolic Church. My primitive Baptist grandmother was a Catholic, whether she acknowledged it or not, or recognized it or not, because she was baptized and had a true baptism. So that's what we want to say about individual Christians, however they may be baptized. If they are baptized into Christ, then they have a share in the mystical body the visible sacramental communion of an individual Christian with that body 
may be impaired, but nevertheless, there is a true baptism. Let's now start to talk about apostolic succession. Now, this first point of baptism addresses only individual Christians. The question of the validity or the authenticity of entire communions or ecclesial communities is different. The Anglican starting and ending point for this question must surely be the rule of ordination and consecration found in the preface to the ordinal of 1662, which rule is still authoritative in the Anglican tradition today. Whatever was the policy of the pre-Restoration Church, the established Church of England and her daughter churches from 1662 forward, have required Episcopal ordination and consecration for a valid, universally, and mutually recognized ministry. The preface to the ordinal does not necessarily unchurch Protestant bodies that lack the historic succession of bishops, priests, and deacons, but it certainly makes explicitly clear that the Anglican Church only recognizes for herself a sacramentally valid ministry which is transmitted by bishops in the apostolic succession. It does not specifically address the validity or invalidity of the orders or sacramental ministrations of ecclesial bodies which lack the historic episcopate. But the inferences and the logical consequences are un unambiguous. All post-1662 canon law in the churches of the Anglican tradition requires Episcopal ordination in the case of Protestant ministers who enter our communion and wish to continue to exercise ministry. Ordained ministers who are received into Anglicanism from churches which possess apostolic succession, the Roman Catholic Church, the Chalcedonian Orthodox churches, the Orthodox Old Catholics, the Oriental Orthodox, the Assyrian Church of the East, and Orthodox Scandinavian Lutherans, which have apostolic succession, these churches have valid orders, and their ministers are not ordained, but are received in their orders when they come to Anglicanism. So Anglicanism, in this case, works from canonical, liturgical, and sacramental precedent, not from formulation of strict statements of doctrine. We recall that validity is a legal term, not a spiritual one, and every act, every sacramental act, is valid for the community that celebrates it. It is only when reciprocity or mutual recognition of ministries and sacraments is approached and desired that the question of validity in the strictly objective sense arises. Since 1662, the historic Anglican position has been to recognize as its own ministry and sacraments, and hence the ministry and sacraments of the one Catholic Church, only those which are administered by churches treasuring apostolic succession. The Anglican tradition claims only to have and only to recognize the orders, ministry, and sacraments of the one Catholic Church. She claims that her own sacraments and orders are simply those of the Church of all the ages. We have no distinctive faith or order of our own, only that of the undivided Church of the first millennium. In this case, therefore, we understand the position of Anglicanism, or at least of Orthodox Catholic <laughs> Anglicanism. So we don't want to unchurch people, and we would say that we don't unchurch people individually by virtue of their baptism. However, when it comes to the structure or the orders or the ministry of particular churches, Anglicanism simply would say we can only recognize as being of the one church those sacraments and orders which possess the character of apostolic succession. And in so doing, we're not saying that other Christians outside the great church, the historic Catholic church, are deprived of grace. We would never say that. The Lambeth Conference of 1920 actually says that the Holy Spirit uses, owns, and blesses the ministration, the worship, even the sacramental signs and practices of churches and Christians outside apostolic succession. But when it comes to the authenticity or the guarantee, the covenant means of grace, 
we have to rely on the apostolic succession because that is what Christ has given to us. The whole point of apostolic succession is that it confers within the life of the church a certitude of grace in the sacramental order and truth in apostolic teaching of apostolic doctrine. This is why we have apostolic succession to begin with. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, that is good. I think that's often the question that's raised when you start having this discussion is, well, what about my grandmother who isn't in a church that's in apostolic succession or my, or my parents or or what have you, because it sounds like you're saying they're not Christians, but I think your explanation is great. Thank you. Well, yeah. it's a controversial one. It's sensitive, isn't it? And we want to be sensitive. Traditional Anglo-Catholics have always been, I think, willing to approach other Christians, to work with them where they can and as we can. But also Anglo-Catholics are very firm about doctrinal truth and about the objectivity and the clear apostolic deposit of faith that we have in the New Testament and in the apostolic tradition. And it's our desire that all Christians would embrace that tradition. That's so we, we, we want to be erenic, we want to be open-hearted and open-minded, but we also want to maintain the standard of the church as historically given. Absolutely. So speaking of historically given, um, could you speak a little bit perhaps to the historical development of apostolic succession? So you definitely mentioned uh, the scriptural witness, which I think is was great. It's foundational. Once you kind of have Catholic eyes to see the New Testament, you see you realize it's a very Catholic book. It's it's all over the place. But um, are there? Do you have anything to speak towards kind of how it, apostolic succession was used, developed, and um, kind of blossomed in those early years? Because it was definitely there and it was important. Absolutely, thank you. And you know, when we look at the data that comes to us from the post-apostolic or the sub-apostolic period, that is when things really start to take shape. So we have the New Testament witness. We have the Gospels. We have the institution of the Twelve. We have the conferral of our Lord's own Easter peace and power and authority and commission on the Twelve, both before and after his resurrection. We have the outpouring, the gift of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost, in which the Twelve were energized with the grace of the Holy Spirit to go forward as apostolic men sent forth by Christ to proclaim the Gospel. We see the Apostles then in the Acts of the Apostles building up the church, establishing churches around the world, and ordaining sacred ministers, presbyters and deacons to serve congregations, ordaining bishops to govern in local areas. All of that is found in the New Testament with qualifications outlined by St. Paul. Then we get into the post-apostolic period of the Apostolic Fathers, who are known to us very, very well. And their literature is critical in the development of Orthodox Christian theology and practice. We think of St. Ignatius of Antioch. Let's look at his work first. St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote most of his epistles around the year 107 AD, or right before that time period. And ultimately, he was martyred in Rome at the beginning of the second century. St. Ignatius of Antioch is the successor of St. Peter in the Sea of Antioch. And he knew very well those who knew the apostles, who had worshipped with the apostles, who had been taught by the apostles. It's a tradition that Ignatius of Antioch was the child that our Lord picked up when he gave the wonderful statement, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. There is an ancient tradition that might have been Ignatius of Antioch, that was picked up and placed in the lap of our Lord. Well, Ignatius certainly was connected to the entire apostolic band and the apostolic tradition. St. Ignatius clearly teaches in his letters that the bishop is the icon of God the Father, the college of the presbyterate is the college of the apostles, and the deacon is an image either of the Holy Spirit or of Jesus Christ himself. But the bishop is called the icon of God the Father. And we have the famous phrase from St. Ignatius, where the bishop is, let the congregation gather, just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Ecclesia Catholicon, uh, the Catholic Church. It's the first use of the word Catholic outside of the New Testament itself, which is not used there. But we find this first instance, the word Catholic is used in other contexts, but St. Ignatius is the first author to use the word Catholic 
in reference to the church, and here it is in 107 AD. The ecclesiology, the sacramentology of Ignatius of Antioch is clear. He teaches what is called the mono-episcopate, the mon-episcopate, one bishop for one city for one congregation, or if we, we use the modern term, diocese. And he's very clear about this. So whatever other alternative forms of church government may have existed in some local communities at the time of the apostles or immediately thereafter, it is clear by the time of St. Ignatius of Antioch that every diocese, every Christian community possesses one bishop. And that one bishop is the successor of the apostles. He has the fullness of apostolic authority to teach, sanctify, and govern. He is the center of the local church, and as such is the basis of the church's unity and life. St. Ignatius teaches that the bishop is the representative of God in the local church and must be obeyed as such, and that all ecclesiastical authority and power arises from and derives from the bishop who possesses unique authority. So the ecclesiology of St. Ignatius is that of a Eucharistic ecclesiology. The bishop stands at the altar celebrating the mysteries of the Eucharist in communion with the whole people of God <clears throat> gathered with him at the altar. The priests, the deacons, the faithful gather with the bishop around the Eucharistic altar, and that is the Catholic Church. It is a microcosm of the universal church. And the centrality of that mystery is the bishop who personifies the church and possesses the authority of God in it, and the Eucharist, which is the means by which the church is made and by which Christians are incorporated into the living Christ. So all of that is found by 107 AD, right after the, the biblical canon was written and was beginning to be formulated. Now, we didn't have an official New Testament canon until much, much later. We recall that St. Athanasius of Alexandria is the one that really gives us the New Testament canon, and that doesn't happen until the fourth century. So here, even at the beginning of the second century, we have St. Ignatius of Antioch telling us, first of all, there are bishops. These bishops have apostolic authority and power. They descend from Christ. They represent God the Father in the local church. No bishop or priest or deacon can participate in the Eucharist without the bishop's authority, and no priest can celebrate the Eucharist without the authority of the bishop. And the bishop hands on his authority to other bishops. So all of this is laid out very clearly by 107. A little bit earlier is St. Clement of Rome. Now, St. Clement of Rome writes two letters around 96 AD, and he describes very clearly apostolic succession. He says that Christ gave his own authority and power and commission to the apostles, and that in every place, the bishops of the church have established the church, and they continue to hand on this authority from Christ, constituting Christ's church in every place. Uh, the Bishop of Rome clearly states to us that, that he is a successor bishop to Peter and to Paul and the other apostles, and that this authority is going to be handed on after him. So this idea of transmission of apostolic authority is clearly delineated by St. Clement of Rome at the end of the first century. There were early Christian communities, in fact, that used first and second Clement as part of their biblical canon. There were some Christians who used the letters of St. Clement as New Testament texts. Well, the church did not receive those ultimately as inspired scripture, but there were early Christians that used those letters as such. So we can certainly trust the testimony of St. Clement of Rome. And what he describes is the fact is that the episcopate has an authority from Christ, and it also has a continuity from Christ that will continue on. Then you have St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp of Smyrna, again in the same time period, is the successor of St. John. And we see that he writes about the teaching of Christ, which is handed down to the apostles, like St. John, 
And that deposit of faith, that teaching, that content of apostolic faith, of, of the tradition, is then handed down by bishop to bishop to bishop, apostle to apostle to apostle. So St. Polycarp indicates very clearly that the, the bishops are latter-day apostles, and they possess the same apostolic tradition as the Twelve. So we can provide many, many instances of this, but these are three significant representatives, three eyewitnesses, if you will, to the apostolic tradition now being handed down in the early church at the end of the first, at the beginning of the second century. And we can continue. You go to St. Irenaeus of Lyon. He's 150 AD. He's in Gaul. He's in France. And he says the apostolic succession is the guarantor of orthodox Christian doctrine. The heretics can't trace the line of their ordination. Heretics invent new doctrine, invent new schools of doctrine, and new movements of theological teaching, but they don't have apostolic tradition to back it up. And the way that we know that they can't back it up is they don't have apostolic bishops in their line of teaching office. So apostolic succession is not only about the sacramental conferral of grace in the sacramental life. It is about the conferral of the authority to teach the gospel. And this is why, even to this day, bishops have a chair. We know in the Old Testament that the successors of Moses would sit in Moses' seat. There was a chair of authority. And the rabbi, the one who succeeded Moses, who had the prophetical office of the church, such a man would sit in a chair of authority. He would teach from Moses' seat. Our Lord himself says that. In the New Testament, the teaching office is also in a chair. The cathedra, or the cathedra, the apostolic throne of the bishop. This is why we have the chair of the bishop, the cathedra, in a cathedral, which means that the church in which that seat is located is the house, the home of the seat. So a cathedral is where the bishop's seat or throne is, his chair. And from that chair, he teaches. He teaches because he has what St. Irenaeus of Lyon calls the charism of truth. That is, the apostolic succession confers by the Holy Ghost on a bishop the authority to teach in the name of Christ and the church, a charism of truth. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit conferred in ordination, apostolic ordination. So there is a teaching office in the church, and only those bishops who trace their apostolic succession of office, apostolic succession of teaching order, only they have the authority, the legitimate authority, then to teach the gospel. You see, the New Testament has no idea of freelance Christianity. The New Testament ecclesiology is the mystical body of Christ. It is the kingdom of God. Christ is the king, and the vice regents of this kingdom are the apostles. They possess the authority of Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king, and that authority inheres in the life of the church. The church is not a democracy. The church is not a voluntary association. The church is a hierarchy. It descends from Christ and the Twelve. And so what the early witnesses of the Christian faith teach us in the first two or three centuries is that the church is a visible, sacramental society. It is an institutional structure, yes, but beyond that, it is a sacramental, visible reality which has Christ as its center and its head, and the 12 apostles, who are the foundation of the church, like the 12 gates or the 12 pillars in the book of Revelation, the 12 apostles confer then the authority of the apostolic ministry throughout the church. So in a real sense, the church is founded on Christ, who is the rock. It's also founded on the rock of the apostolic tradition. You know, this is what our Lord means in St. Matthew 16. Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That is the apostolic authority 
of Peter. And as St. Cyprian of Carthage says, that authority given to Peter is shared by every bishop. That wasn't uniquely given to St. Peter. We read later in St. Matthew 18, that's given to all 12 apostles too. So the office of Peter, the rock, is found in every bishop. And therefore, the apostolic succession is not only about the sacramental order of the church, it's about the authority of the church authentically, genuinely, and truly to proclaim and teach the content of Christian faith, which is a saving faith. It's salvific. The church has the teaching office of Christ. Because that's a long-winded answer to your wonderful question. Well, actually, actually, it raises another question one of the listeners uh, asked on Facebook, and I think this is uh, a good place to ask, ask it. Um, so he would like our thoughts on what we ought to think about bishops who have the right pedigree, that is, they can trace their lineage back to the apostles, but uh, fail to guard apostolic teaching. Um, and he, he makes the point that most Anglican bishops in the West would fail this test today. Um, and so so how do we think about that? Obviously wanting to maintain orthodoxy, being one of the roles of the bishop, but also wanting to avoid the heresy of Donatism. Absolutely. Ah, Donatism. Because Donatism <laughs> postulated that one would lose the grace of the sacraments by virtue of apostasy and heresy. And St. Augustine vigorously opposed this heresy because he said that the validity of the sacraments depends not upon the moral worthiness or character of the minister, but on the promises of Christ and the institution of Christ in the sacraments. And of course, St. Augustine was right, because if any sacrament depended for its validity, its sacramental effect, efficaciousness, if it depended on the moral worthiness of the, of the minister, then we would never have any certainty that any sacrament was valid. At that point, the entire sacramental life of the church is thrown into chaos and confusion. So St. Augustine is certainly right about that. There is a slight difference here when we're talking about the authority of bishops, because the bishop is consecrated and receives a sacrament of consecration from Christ through the laying on of hands by the Holy Spirit to both sanctify, teach, and govern on one hand, and to be a living witness of the resurrection of the other. We think about how the bishops of the church were constituted by Christ in the beginning with the apostles. They were witnesses of the resurrection, eyewitnesses. This was the major qualification to be consecrated an apostle by our Lord. And along with that was the testimony and the witness of apostolic doctrine and teaching, which is based in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. They are witnesses of the resurrection and the truth of the gospel, that forgiveness of sins is to be preached throughout the world in Christ's name, because Christ is the one who is raised from the dead, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and it is only through Christ and in Christ that salvation is extended through repentance to the ends of the world. So there is this extremely important theological and moral character and a, a character of salvation in the content of what is being preached and taught. Now, an apostate bishop really cannot be said to have apostolic succession. We can say this much about apostate bishops or heretical bishops. How do we treat them? Their sacramental ministrations may be valid, right? Because Donatism is a heresy. It's been roundly condemned by the church. St. Augustine led the charge against it, and rightly so. So an apostate or heretical bishop may hold to false doctrine, false teaching, but he can still be validly consecrated and therefore validly celebrate sacraments. He would be capable under certain circumstances of validly, of course, baptizing, because anyone can validly baptize as long as they use the Trinitarian formula and intend to confer Christian baptism. Uh, so that doesn't require very much. Uh, an apostate or heretical bishop can validly ordain and consecrate. But what we would say about that bishop is he no longer possesses apostolic succession in the office of the apostles for teaching the gospel. And as such, he has abandoned the Catholic faith 
and he possesses no genuine authority. The Eastern Orthodox churches have a more Cyprianic theology than we do in the West. We Anglicans are still Augustinian when it comes to our understanding generally of the sacraments. So we would be prepared to say that a false bishop, that is a heretical bishop or an apostate bishop, still possesses the sacrament of holy orders, but by virtue of his heresy or apostasy, no longer possesses the teaching office of the Catholic Church. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the bishop would no longer have apostolic succession at all, and his ordinations and consecrations would be invalid. We don't go that far, uh, although I think the Orthodox here probably have a point. So we, we see the, these issues a little bit differently between East and West. The majority of so-called Anglican bishops in the West would fall under the category of either heretical or apostate. Heretical means that they have denied some essential aspect of the Christian faith as revealed by Christ as dogmatic truth, or apostate, which means that they have generally abandoned the Christian religion. Most so-called Anglican bishops in the Western world fall into one of these two categories. We, traditional continuing Anglican Catholics, would not even give the name Anglican to such bishops. We would say that they're not actually Anglicans because they've ceased to be a real living part of the Catholic Church, and the Anglican Church is a living branch of the Catholic Church. So we might say that we might say they were pretending to be Anglicans or sort of quasi-Anglican, which is why it's very important for all of us to find real, authentic Anglican bishops who stand in the apostolic succession, who teach the fullness of the Catholic faith of the seven ecumenical councils, and who possess an unbroken succession from the Church of England in the days of her orthodoxy, which has now been some time ago. So that's an important reminder for us. Yes, that's really good. I was wondering, too, if we could circle back to something you said um, in the la in answer to the last question that I asked before this one, um, where you had talked about uh, all the apostles having the same authority that was given to Peter, the rock. Um, obviously, as Anglicans, you know, we don't have the papacy, um, but Roman Catholics will talk about papal succession, where we talk about sort of a more broader apostolic succession. Could you just elaborate on the distinction between our approach and their approach? Yes, absolutely. This is one of the things that led to the the instinct of Roman Catholics, the desire of Roman Catholics to try to find a way to declare Anglican orders invalid in the 19th century, because in the 16th century, apostolic succession continued in an unbroken manner in the Church of England without a papal mandate. There was no mandate from the Pope to consecrate bishops in the Church of England. We had valid and apostolic bishops, and they consecrated new bishops. We think of 1559, Matthew Parker was consecrated as the Archbishop of Canterbury by four bishops, all four of whom had apostolic succession, but there was no papal mandate. We didn't ask the Pope for permission to consecrate the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Roman Catholic Church was angered by this. It was irritated and sought, therefore, over time to sort of find a way, if they could find a loophole, to say that our orders were not valid, and then they invented the fiction of apostolic A. Cure in 1896 <laughs> to, to declare that our orders are not valid. But this goes to the point that in Roman Catholic ecclesiology, the Pope really is the super bishop. Now, this contradicts the teaching of St. Gregory the Great, who in the late 6th, early 7th century said, there is no bishop of bishops. There is no supreme bishop in the church. Those were the words of St. Gregory the Great, who was himself the Pope of Rome. The ancient tradition, which is shared originally by the Roman Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, is that the apostolic succession is an undivided episcopate. And this refers to the theology of St. Cyprian of Carthage, who lived and taught in the third century. The apostolic succession is a college. It is a college of apostolic bishops 
in communion with one another, this collegiality, this college, this unity of bishops is reflected by the fact that in the New Testament, there is not merely one apostle, but 12. And the 12 share an undivided apostolic episcopate. That is, episcopos, overseer, supervisor, apostolic, those who are sent forth, sent out by Christ. And so the chair of Peter is an undivided chair, St. Cyprian says. The office of Peter is an undivided office shared equally by all of the apostles, and therefore all the apostles are Peter, all the apostles are James, all the apostles are John. They share equally in the apostolic succession with no differentiation in its sacramental power or teaching authority and office. So it is the college of apostolic order that leads to the conciliarity of the church. We clearly see in the New Testament, in the post-apostolic period, if you will, the age of the apostolic fathers of the sub-apostolic period, that the church was governed by the college of bishops. We have conciliarity, we have councils. Acts chapter 15, the first major decisions made by the apostolic church, both in terms of doctrine and discipline, were rendered at a, a council, a council of the apostles. All the apostles came together. So from that time forth, it has been understood that the episcopate exercises the teaching office of the church individually as the bishop, as the father, the shepherd, and the teacher of the diocese, yes, but on a grand scale, on a universal or Catholic scale, the authority of the episcopate is exercised in conciliarity in councils, the supreme manifestation of, of which would be the seven ecumenical councils of the undivided church. Now, when we look at the Roman Catholic Church, we see the evolution of papal supremacy over time. In the beginning, the Bishop of Rome was seen as the successor of St. Peter and St. Paul in the See of Rome. Then eventually, it was decided that the bishop was the vicar of Christ. This title, of course, is true of every bishop. Every bishop is Peter. Every bishop inherits the fullness of the apostolic authority from the Twelve. Every bishop is the vicar of Christ, that is, the sacramental representative of Jesus Christ on earth in his own diocese. He's a sacramental representative. Eventually, the Bishop of Rome wanted to say that he was the Vicar of Christ in a unique sense, in an exclusive sense that excluded other sees and other bishops. Eventually, this would grow and grow, and finally then, in 1870, you find at the First Vatican Council that the Bishop of Rome declares that he possesses universal authority over every Christian, which is called universal, universal jurisdiction, universal immediate jurisdiction, and possesses infallibility, in which the Bishop of Rome can teach officially from the chair of Peter in an infallible way, both in faith and morals. And what is critical for Anglican Catholics in that innovation in 1870 is the phrase in Latin, ex consensu ecclesiae, that is, First Vatican Council says that the Bishop of Rome can teach infallibly on faith and morals in an official capacity uh, beyond or outside of the consensus of the church. Well, that demolishes apostolic succession because the bishop is to be the guardian, the faithful guardian and protector and steward of the apostolic tradition. He is the steward, not the master of the tradition. And when the Bishop of Rome said that he could teach infallibly apart from or outside of the tradition or the consensus of the church, that elevated the papal office to a degree of authority unknown heretofore in the history of Christianity. So the Roman view of apostolic succession, not to exaggerate it too much, is to say that there is really one true bishop who is the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And all other bishops are representatives, legates, surrogates 
of the Pope. Whereas the ancient tradition is that every bishop is equal to every other bishop. All the patriarchates, remember the Pentarchy of the early church, we had five popes. There were five apostolic patriarchates in the undivided church, and they all possessed equal authority. Their honor differed from one to another. Old Rome, the see of Peter and Paul, Rome in Italy was given the highest honor and privilege of, of recognition as being the first see because it was the see of Peter and Paul. Then you had the see of New Rome or Constantinople, which was the see of St. Andrew. And then following up, you had Antioch, Alexandria, and of course the apostolic foundation, Jerusalem. Oddly enough, Jerusalem was always put at the bottom. I don't really know why that's the case other than the Roman Empire was centered in Rome and Constantinople. And Jerusalem is one of the five sees of the five papacies, if you will. There weren't five popes. Uh, for one pope, there were five popes. Well, the Pentarchy, the five great patriarchates, were equal in their apostolic office of teaching in terms of doctrine. They possessed different levels of honor, degrees of honor, but there was never any conception that any patriarch was higher than another. In some cases, Rome was allowed to receive appeals. There would be disputes amongst the bishops or even patriarchs, and on occasion Rome, because of its, its primacy of love and honor, would hear appeals of theological disputes. But the, the purity that was understood to exist in the Roman church was because it had never suffered any major heresy or schism by uh, really the, the for good fortune and the blessing of the Lord in history, but it wasn't some kind of special, unique, infallible charism that existed only in the See of Rome. So Anglicans approached the question of apostolicity from the early church and the undivided church, which has an undivided episcopate. I hope that makes sense. I'm rambling. But hey, no. that's what Zoom is for, right? That is what Zoom's for. That's good stuff. That's true. No, and I think you answered another question that I was having, which is kind of the difference between apostolic succession in East and West, and then how Anglicans would approach it. Uh, so I think you've answered that. Um, should Father West, do you have anything else right now? Well, I was thinking we could probably go ahead and start uh, bringing the conversation to a close. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. So obviously, um, you know, I think we can all agree that apostolic succession succession matters. Um, it uh, is obedience to Christ. Um, further, it provides us sacramental assurance, um, especially when we're talking about the priesthood. Um, so what would you say, Bishop, to someone who's uh, maybe in a tradition that doesn't have apostolic succession and um, is thinking about uh, potentially moving to somewhere where there is apostolic succession. That's awesome. I have another little meditation I share with you. I pulled yes, please. Us today. Yes. What would we say about this to fellow Christians who are in churches that do not have apostolic succession? Why is this important? Why did, does this matter? Why would you want to belong to a church that has apostolic succession? Well, before I read my little statement about this and try to explore those issues, let's also point out the Eucharistic nature of apostolic succession. We want to belong to churches where we know that the greatest gift that was ever conveyed on mankind is conferred to us in a guaranteed way, and that is the Holy Eucharist. That is the true body and blood of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. It is the person of Jesus Christ, his entire person, one true person of God the Son, with two natures, human and divine, under the form of bread and wine, body, blood, soul, and divinity. The Eucharist is Jesus Christ. The greatest calamity of the Reformation were, was that there were so many groups of Christians who, no, through no fault of their own, were separated from the sacrament of the altar because our Lord Jesus gave the apostles the power and the authority and the commission to represent him at the altar and to confect and consecrate his living body and blood in the blessed sacrament. And the tragedy, the greatest tragedy, I think, of the Reformation was the separation of so many Christians who loved Jesus and faithful to him, but they were separated from the altar and from the gift of the Eucharist 
which is the, the sum and summit of the Christian life, the apex of Christian being, of living, of worshiping, as we are united to our Lord in, in his true substantial presence in the Blessed Sacrament. So that alone would be, I think, motivation for coming on board. This is why I did it when I was a teenager. I, I was starving. I was hungering and thirsting for the Eucharist. And that longing and desire for Christ in this most marvelous way is what led me finally to embrace the Catholic and apostolic faith so that I could have our Lord given in this most marvelous, most magnificent, most magnanimous of all gifts, which is our Lord in his body and blood. So saying that and, and recognizing that apostolic succession is necessary for the Eucharist, I will share just a little meditation on this and why apostolic succession is important. The Holy Catholic Church believes herself to be the sacrament of Christ to the world, mediating the divine life of the Holy Trinity through the objective covenantal promises of Christ's institution, making available to all men who receive by faith the transformative gift of grace. The sacramental principle simply means that our Lord extends, prolongs, and continues his incarnation through his mystical body, the church. The church and sacraments are, in a real sense, Christ himself at work for the salvation and sanctification of mankind. The church is the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The redeemed human race sealed by baptism and nourished with the Eucharist. The saved human family restored to communion with the Father through the Son in the Holy Ghost. The church is therefore sacramental because she is herself the great sacrament of Christ, a visible, sacramental, incarnational, supernatural society with visible characteristics officers, and means of grace. Apostolic succession is the sacrament that guarantees that the church and sacraments as instituted by Christ are administered by and through Christ with his own personal authority and commission. Only the apostles and their successors have directly received from our Lord the power and authority to do and to effect what Christ commanded them to do. Apostolic bishops and priests are the ministers of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. They are the ambassadors for Christ. Through the sacrament of holy orders, they minister in the person of Christ in persona Christi. The lack of apostolic succession deprives us of sacramental assurance and the plenitude of the church as given to us by our gracious Lord. The sacraments are the covenants of grace which assure and guarantee what they promise. They effect what they symbolize and symbolize what they effect, being efficacious or effective signs of grace. But the sacraments can only serve to be objective means of grace if they are administered according to Christ's appointment. And the way that Christ appointed the sacraments to be given is through apostolic succession. The key to unlocking the problem is Holy Trinity, uh, is Holy Tradition in the Holy Trinity. Many non-Catholics interpret the Bible according to their own theological and speculative matrix. Their hermeneutical interpretation of Scripture often replaces or displaces the magisterium of the primitive tradition. So it's very important for us to maintain the teaching of the Holy Fathers, the seven ecumenical councils, the tradition of the undivided church. Holy tradition is revealed by God in the church for the right interpretation of the scriptural record, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So apostolic succession is part of this. The Catholic priesthood, which extends in space and time, and under a sacramental form, the very priesthood of Jesus Christ, is the appointed means of salvation given by our Lord to the apostles and the church. 
It is at the heart of the gospel because the sacramental priesthood is used by our Lord to apply and appropriate to his members the graces won for us by his incarnation, life, death, and glorification. So as we read in the Anglican ordinal, Jesus sent abroad into the world his apostles, prophets, evangelists, doctors, and pastors, for these so great benefits of thy eternal goodness, and for that thou hast vouchsafed to call these thy servants here present, to the same office and ministry appointed for the salvation of mankind. So the great Austin Ferrer, the Anglican poet and preacher and writer and priest says, the priest is the sacramental man, a walking sacrament. Such is the wondrous love of God who condescends to save us incarnationally by human means and human instruments. Because of the words incarnation and priesthood, the man Jesus Christ saves men as men. We don't have to become something else to become one with God. God redeems and divinizes us in our own human nature, the nature that he shares with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And apostolic succession is part of that. The salvific sacraments depend for their efficacy upon a valid priesthood which confers the power and promise of Christ. And here grace and faith meet in a divine gift and exchange. Apostolic priesthood is the loving provision of God his own seal of promise, his own guaranteed assurance of grace given to those incorporated into the life of the Blessed Trinity. Such is the gift of the apostolicity of the church. And all we must do is keep our end of the covenant and maintain what God has deliber deliberately and freely bequeathed to us. So there's a summary of why we're doing this. And why we believe it. <laughs> yes, Thank you absolutely. for your patience. I've gone on and on and on. No, I Whoa, think it's, it's all good stuff. Very good stuff. Yeah, we're we're very thankful. And I think at this point, I mean, how can we top that? So, yeah, I think it's time for us to to wrap it up. I mean, I think we've said everything that needs to be said. So, um, thank you to all of our listeners who have followed us and who have watched this live stream of this episode. Will it will be up on the podcast feed in a um in a number of weeks after some editing and a few other episodes get up. But thank you, Bishop, for joining us yet again. God bless you. It's wonderful to see you both fathers. And thank you for leading us through this conversation. I pray that you and your families and everyone listening at home and around the world will have a very blessed Holy Week and Easter day. Yes. God bless you all. Thank you. Well, now comes to the part of the show where we talk about uh, what we're into. So, Father Miles, why don't you start us off? What are you into lately? Yeah, lately I've been into the book of Revelation. Dun, dun, dun. So <laughs> I, love the, I love the book of Revelation. I was obsessed with it as a kid when I was a dispensationalist. Mostly it terrified me. And then as I got off to college and I studied scripture for the first time academically, my interpretation of the book changed, but I still remained enamored by the book. And then when I went off to college, I realized there were just multi, or not college, seminary, multiple other layers of interpretive frameworks for Revelation. <clears throat> One of my favorite being that it often serves as this great critique of pagan culture, of which we are kind of stuck in right now. So... Revelation's always been fascinating to me. So in the just before everything shut down because of, because of COVID-19, I had begun a Sunday school class through the book of Hebrews. We had gotten one lesson in, and then this happened. And after talking to some people in the parish, they said, we really want that to continue in person. So let's just postpone it until pandemic's over. So I thought, all right, what sort of teaching could I give my people? So I've been recording lessons through the book of Revelation. I'm only two in. The third one will come out next week after Easter. Too much going on this week to get another episode out. So just walking through, uh, sure, I, you know, Revelation could be a 25-part series if I wanted it to because it's a very in-depth book, but trying to make it more like 12, 13 lessons so that way it's overview. I think a lot of people are scared of Revelation. They don't know what to do with it. They think that the only option is left-behind theology so they never touch it, but Revelation is a beautiful picture of the worship of God in this apocalyptic vision and how it manifests, as you said earlier, Bishop, the church manifests itself as the sacrament of Christ to the world. So excited about digging for 
the fifth or sixth or seventh time in my life, I don't even know, into the book of Revelation. That's wonderful. You're a braver man than I. <laughs> um, so Father Miles definitely has me beat as far as what I'm into. I'm I'm just into long walks lately. It's the one time I get to be out of my house and uh, where I'm not going grocery shopping. So I've just been taking like seven to ten mile hikes. We have a nature preserve that we live right next to, so I can go back there and have been finding all kinds of cool little off trail routes and things. So uh, that's all I've been doing really is just taking very long walks. Bishop Chad, what are you into? Well, yesterday, our youngest child, Kaylin, she's five years old, finally was able to ride her bike on her own. So we've been trying to get outside, and her mother, Megan, has been helping her with the bike, and I've been trying very feebly to help, not very effectively. But yesterday, she got it. So she's riding her bike up and down our cul-de-sac in the neighborhood. That's what we've been doing. We've been trying to get outside more, watch TV and news less. Mm-hmm. And just enjoy being in God's good creation and just trying to relax and and not get too caught up in in so much fear and anxiety that we all face with this stay at home process that, you know, we're starting to wear on some nerves, frankly. Mm, Yes, for sure. We've been doing some bike riding in the neighborhood. (laughs) Fun. Well, listeners, if you like what we're doing, uh, help other people find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can always follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook discussion group as well and let us know what you think. You can email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. Bishop Chad, would you give us a blessing to close us? I would be honored. Let us pray. The peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Amen.